Now then, Buddhism. In order to introduce Buddhism, it's necessary to remember... <laughs> this is Infants on Thrones. The philosophies of men mingled with humans. We are the core. Welcome back to Infants on Thrones. I'm Glenn Ostland, and this is part two, the final part of my conversation with Noah Rochetta on his book, No Nonsense Buddhism for Beginners. So let's just pick up right where we left off in part one. Again, using the analogy of the clay Buddha, the, the clay is the conditioning, the idea or the belief that has me blinded from experiencing contentment because here I am comparing how I am to how I think I should be and the whole idea of how I should be could just be a conceptual truth that I've inherited from words and from society and there's really nothing else to it other than well I believe that I should be this way so until I'm this way I'm not happy here I am sitting miserably because I'm not uh, mindful enough or I'm not kind enough or I'm not whatever it is that uh, there's no truth to it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And, and you, you talk about suffering and unhappiness and trauma a lot. And th I, th this is something that maybe you can help me understand better because I, I, I hear people when they talk about Buddhism, they'll say that, you know, one of the purposes, main purpose of Buddhism is to, remove suffering from the world or to eliminate suffering. And, you know, as I've looked into, I don't think that that's exactly right. I don't think that that, I don't think that's even possible. So I, I've got some thoughts on that, but, but I want to hear what you have to say first about yeah, the, the role I, of suffering in, in Buddhism. I do think that is one of the misconceptions. And like you said, it's not possible. The, the first, so if you were to take Buddhism and kind of present it as uh, here are the universal truths that are taught in Buddhism. Um, the first one of those, the first of the noble truths okay. is that in life there is suffering. Mm -hmm. um, now, some people will uh, misinterpret that and say life is suffering. Anyone who says differently is selling something. And that's not what it's saying. What, the, what it's trying to be conveyed in that teaching is that in life we all experience difficulties. Now, the moment I want life to be other than it is, I get this feeling, which is what we call suffering uh, or, or discontent or anguish. There's so many words that could be used in place of suffering. But it's that feeling of life isn't going the way that I want it to go. And that feeling of uh, that disconnect, that's, that's suffering. Um, recognizing that that's universal. Everyone's going to experience it. Uh, what Buddhism is trying to do is essentially weed out what is natural suffering and what is self-inflicted suffering. Uh, an example of natural suffering is like stubbing your toe or uh, the feeling that you get when you put a lot of hard work into something and, and, and then you, I don't know, you buy something and then that thing breaks, right? That natural feeling of loss or the loss of a loved one would be another good example of a very natural form of, of suffering, which is... Uh, um, that's not what we're concerned with in Buddhism. That's not the type of suffering that we're looking to eliminate. What we're concerned with in this practice is recognizing that a lot of the suffering we experience is suffering that we bring on ourselves because of ideas or beliefs. Um, 
and and what we're trying to do is uh, recognize the self-inflicted suffering that I experience in life. That is something I can work with. That has causes. What are the causes of that suffering? It may just be something as simple as a belief that I hold. And that belief creates this unnecessary suffering. That's something I can work with and eliminate. So we're looking to eliminate the forms of self-inflicted suffering in life. But it's a misconception to say we're trying to eliminate suffering. That goes against the very first uh, of those truths, which is that in life there uh, difficulties arise or there is suffering. Um, so trying to get rid of it, like I mentioned for me in my story and in my book, that only made it worse because you can't get rid of some of this stuff. That's the experience of being alive is also the experience of, of discontent and heartache and anger and pain, along with all the good things, joy and happiness and laughing. Uh, it's kind of taking all of it and recognizing where can I weed out and, and, and discover the self-inflicted part of this. Do, do you do you ever talk to people and get pushback where, for example, you might take something like the the, the Me Too movement and, you know, Harvey Weinstein and patriarchy and, and rape and all these awful, horrible things that happen, that, that the awareness has really, really increased that these things are going on. Um, and so you're saying, uh, well, Buddhism isn't really about eliminating the source of suffering. And so people would go, oh, well, wait, so you're okay with rape? You're okay with all of these horrible things? Buddhism is okay with that? No, we've got to change this. We've really got to change. Do you ever come across that kind of pushback? Um, I, uh, only a couple of times. I think, so we have this tendency to, to view life through the dichotomy of, of this or that, black and white, right and wrong. Um, and an example of this, early on in my, in my marriage, I realized um, how natural it is to, to draw the counter assumption to something. So at a Sunday dinner, I, I, I said, um, I can't remember what the food was, but let's say I said, hey, this corn was really good. And the person who had made the rice said, oh, you didn't like the rice? <laughs> and, I, and I realized early on, okay, that's, that's drawing to a conclusion that isn't there. To say the corn is good is not to say the same as saying the rice is bad. And I think that's important to clarify um, when we're talking about uh, these concepts in Buddhism. To say I'm trying to eliminate unnecessary suffering or I'm trying to eliminate um, self-inflicted suffering is not the same as saying then I will accept every other form of suffering. It's not the same thing. Um, what Buddhism is striving to do as, a, as an introspective process, as a philosophical way of life, or for some people as a religious practice, is to identify moments of self-inflicted suffering that I can do something about and, and remove those. It would absolutely also entail recognizing instances of natural suffering that have causes and conditions that you can work with. For example, I'm in an abusive relationship. There's a, a significant amount of natural suffering going on, but there are causes there. Staying in the relationship is one of the causes of that suffering. So I can skillfully approach that form of suffering and say, okay, I'm going to get out of this relationship. Or like the Me Too movement, we identify all of these causes and conditions that are leading to this. So we say, let's do something about it and change you know, change our cultural views or our approach or whatever needs to be changed, I think that falls into it, um, absolutely falls into it. 
but that's not the core of the practice. The core of the practice is a, a self, it's an introspective one where you are dealing with you. But that doesn't mean that at any moment you should not care about all the things that are not you. Sure, <laughs> right. So, so in, in, the, in the, the corn and rice example, um, it, it is, is the source of suffering for the person who says, oh, what, you didn't like my rice? That's an example of self-inflicted suffering. Absolutely, because there's meaning being made there that's not real. So, so um, you, you as as a Buddhist or secular Buddhist would 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 you apologize then and try to clarify and go, oh no no no, I didn't mean that, or would just would you just allow them to simmer in their own <laughs> uh, 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 delusions? <laughs> I don't know that there's a position that I could say this is the secular Buddhist part of you. <laughs> my personal approach um, would be to clarify and say, oh, I, I didn't mean that I, I enjoyed the rice, but I've never had uh, corn quite like that corn uh, or, you know, something to kind of emphasize. No, it's not that I didn't like everything else. It's that that specific thing to me stood out. Um, and I guess what I'm kind of getting, what I'm trying to get to in that is that, for, for you to then not become a source of self-suffering because you could easily feel guilty then that, Oh, I, I unintentionally hurt this person who, who made the rice and I don't want to hurt, you know, I want to make them feel better. So you start like overdoing it <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, and, and, I mean, that's a very real thing because, you know, then I could say, Oh no, I actually really did like the rice. And now a third family member saying, Oh, you didn't like the salad then. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And, I and think then you're, some just, you're these, scrambling to like be somebody and maybe you actually didn't really like the rice as much. You really did like the corn, but you don't yeah. want to hurt that person's feelings, you know? And so then you're being a little bit dishonest with yourself, dishonest with them as a way to try and smooth things over. Um, I, I could see that as potentially being a source of self-suffering as well, because you're cre creating some incongruity in yourself and Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what to well, do. It, well, here's another way to approach this. What I noticed in my family dynamics because of this, I found myself not complimenting the thing I really liked anymore. It was mm. easier just to say, hey, thank you everyone for the dinner. It was great. And not highlight, hey, thank you so-and-so for that one, you know, the bread that you baked. Wow, that was really good. Um, that's also kind of it's made me think, well, is that doing a disservice? Now I don't find myself complimenting the one person for fear of offending all the ones who aren't getting complimented. Right. That's some, that's worth thinking about too. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And okay, I, so I don't know that there are any answers to that. Uh, <laughs> it's just, it's just one of those, uh, an additional conundrum that we encounter in life. You know, if I become very vocal about one specific movement that's happening that hits home for me, uh, is someone else going to say, oh, you're vocal about that, but you're not vocal about this other injustice in the world? Does that mean you don't care about that? I think we would encounter those same issues. And, and, and those of us who are vocal about one cause, we're not vocal about all the causes. We're not out there with signs picketing this other big injustice happening somewhere else because we just can't. So does that put us in this camp where, okay, well, I just try to, I try to be conscious of all the injustices and do what I can, when I can, where I can with all of them. Again, how you approach it? Well, is there a right way? I don't know. Uh, there's your way and there's my way. And, uh, and I think that's important to keep in mind, allowing people to 
you do what you do. It's great. You're doing that and it's creating this voice and it's creating all this awareness. I may not be there holding the sign on that specific issue, but maybe I'm over here doing what I can on this other thing and not accuse each other of, well, you're not doing enough, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that, I, that, I think that's a tough one for me because I, I, I don't, I don't ever want to be the source of suffering for somebody else, but being able to recognize where do I draw the line between who's responsible for the cause of that suffering in that corn and rice situation? Is it really me that did it or yeah. is it the other person that did it? And then what's the, 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 the kind charitable response? Is it to do what, uh, uh, the, the the prince buddha's dad did and try to shelter him from all of the suffering in the world that only makes suffering when it happens more acute oh, yeah. or is it to let them sit with it and figure out how to not be offended on their own and yeah. still just love them through it <laughs> i don't know okay so i so i, I want to go back the 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 first noble truth is that uh there is suffering in this world and, and you made the distinction that um it's not that life is suffering because that implies that the entirety of life is just filled with suffering that fills the immensity of everything that is life. And that's not what it's saying. It's saying that in the course of life, there will be suffering. That is a, a fundamental experience in life. It's not the only one. There are other things, but suffering is a part of it. Mm -hmm. And then the second noble truth has to do with desire. And I, I think that that one gets misrepresented a lot as well. That, yeah. that, that, Desire is the source of suffering is the way that I first learned it and thought about it for so many years. And then more recently, you know, as I've been listening to stuff with Alan Watts, I go, oh, no, I don't think that that's really what it's saying. So tell, tell, tell me, what is the second noble truth about desire? Yeah, it's, it's uh, maybe if you were to scale it back a bit more, it's not necessarily that uh, a desire is the source of it. What it's trying to get at is the understanding that there are causes to, uh, uh, causes to suffering. Suffering has causes and conditions. Um, now, this puts us in a position where we can say, okay, well, if suffering has causes and conditions, but I can't get rid of suffering, I may be able to work with the causes and conditions. In those causes and conditions, there may be things that I can work with. Um, desire is one of those. So a, a common teaching in Buddhism is that we have this tendency of desire towards the things that we like that feel good and aversion towards the things that we don't like, the things that don't feel good. And they're two sides of the same coin. So I find myself in this situation where I, I have aversion towards anger, for example, going back to the, uh, the example I was giving you early. Yeah. Uh, I'm experiencing anger and now I'm angry about the anger. That is an example of aversion. Desire... Uh, could be, oh, I like how it feels to be uh, when I experience something pleasant. So now I'm chasing after that. And this could be, uh, it, desire could be the very thing that leads to like addictions, for example, because I'm, I'm chasing after that feeling that I like. So what Buddhism is saying is when I understand that about myself, that I have, there are natural desires and there are natural aversions. What if I can become more comfortable with the discomfort of not having all my desires and not running away from all the aversions. Um, there can be more equanimity um, and that will eliminate a lot of the causes of my suffering. Um, the misconception again is, oh, I'm not supposed to desire anything. 
But right. but there's a problem in thinking that because if I desire to not desire, I'm desiring. desiring. Yeah. So so I'm stuck. Um, so this is a again one of those moments where you just try to recognize the nature of how things are, and to recognize well this is the nature of how things are. I desire after what's pleasant, and I have aversion towards the unpleasant. Just knowing that about myself will allow me to be more skillful with my desires and with my aversions. Why am I really running from that? Why does that feel bad? Why do I not want to feel this feeling? Or, or the flip side, right? Here's this thing I'm chasing after. Oh, well, why do I want that? Uh, oh, because, you know, and, and you just keep digging and digging and digging. And what you end up with is a little bit more wisdom about yourself. Um, so, and the whole point of that is that uh, understanding that suffering has causes and conditions allows me to handle the suffering I experience in life with a little bit more skill. And that's, that's really the end game. Again, it's not like, oh, I'm going to eliminate all my suffering. Now I'll never desire and I'll never have aversion. That's not going to happen. Um, but what will happen is you can develop more skill around the desires and the aversions that you have in life. Yeah. I, I think the way that I've come to think of it more recently is, is that um, the, the desire for things to be other than what they are only increases suffering. Mm-hmm. because it's, it's that you, you put yourself on this impossible quest. Um, and, and so there's a level of acceptance, I think, um, in, in just desiring for things to be as, as they are. And if that, the, the, the causes and conditions of suffering that you recognize these, and then you accept that they are, and, and you might want them to be other than what they are, but it's kind of a futile effort in some cases, but you have to be able to parse out what are the things that you actually can change and what are the things that that you can't. And so it's, Mm -hmm. um, a struggle. Is is that, is that just my own kind of bastardized interpretation of that second noble truth or or in asking the question, you're going to ask me to bring you the right rock before you give me the right answer. (laughs) No, I, I think that there, that is a common, um, deeper understanding of that truth. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And then the the third one, um, if I'm remembering right, the third noble truth is nirvana. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it kind of depends how they're framed in different traditions. They kind of come across differently. Um, The third one is about understanding that there uh, there is a way to work with the causes and conditions. Um, And then the fourth one is about the path. How do you? What is the path that? That leads to that. Is that the middle way path, the eightfold path of the middle way? Yeah. Okay. So uh, with the third one, you're kind of just understanding. uh, It's like the sense of hope. Oh, I can do something about the things that I can do something about. Mm. I can't do something about the things that I can't do something about. So again, it kind of goes into this, the the parsing of um, having that wisdom to know this is something I can work with. This is something I can't work with. Um, and, and what that instills right away is this uh, like a wisdom of adaptability. If, if I can't do anything about it, okay, then I can, I can accept that this is how this is and, and, and move on to the, what, what can I work with? Um, so you're, you're exploring this in yourself a lot um, with, with this concept uh, of the third one. Um, an yeah, example. Go, go ahead. Give yeah. Give the example. 
the, an example that I would give is, uh, I, I just realized as I'm about to give this example, I always give the example of the emotion of anger. And I think that's because for me, I've always, I kind of grew up with this notion that you're not supposed to be angry. You're a nice guy. Right. Uh, you always turn the other cheek. And the more that I've been told that that's a characteristic that I have, the more angry I get when I do have <laughs> anger. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, um, uh, recognizing that about myself and working with uh, Buddhism as a, as a philosophical way of, of trying to live, I detect like when I get home and if I step on a Lego and suddenly I'm feeling anger, um, what has changed for me isn't that I don't get angry. It's that when I do get angry, I, I recognize it right away as, Oh, here's this emotion again. It, you know, I, I think about it and there it is. It, why am I experiencing this? And I can remain more neutral with the experience of being angry and not have the intense aversion to the anger that, that was a part of my life for, for so many years. Mm. So I'll sit there and I'll be angry and I'll be angry for a while. And I'm not angry that I'm angry. It's just, I'm just angry. And I'll, I'll, I'll experience, you know, wanting to pick up the Legos, wanting to throw them away and say, no more Legos in the house. Like, all of these thoughts pop into my head while I'm angry. And it's almost, uh, it's almost comical how it'll shift to this moment of smiling at my anger and recognizing there it is again. Yeah. That thing that I've avoided for so long in my life, it pops up every now and then. And here it is right now I'm experiencing it. And I, I, I almost have compassion for the me that's feeling the emotion. Oh, and it's, it's changed the relationship that I have with the emotion Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's kind of what we're after with that, with the third noble truth. It's recognizing, uh, yeah, there's suffering and yes, suffering has causes and conditions, but the relationship we have with this whole thing, there's flexibility there. Um, this is just like teaching everybody how to be a Jedi, right? I'm ending all of this, the tree, the text, the Jedi, I'm going to burn it down. (laughs) Just like very Zen. Uh, yeah, it's, it's like it's fun observing your that. emotions. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, fear leads to the dark side. Right, right, all <laughs> that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I think the, the the way that I understood um, the third one as Nirvana. I, I, again, I'm going back to when I I was first introduced to Buddhism in the the mid '90s in that BYU World History class and. The, the concept that I had at the time of Nirvana was of like, that's the state of no wind. I think that's literally what it means. And um, th- that's, that was the afterlife concept in Buddhism uh, that instead of like going to heaven or the celestial kingdom or degrees of glory or anything like that, what you really want to attain to in Buddhism is this afterlife sense of Nirvana. Um, and, and then, so more recently what I've, come to think of is that it's not a super or it doesn't have to be maybe maybe some traditions interpret it that way but that it, it could also be interpreted in a non-supernatural way that the the state of no wind is actually like you you breathe in you take a breath and then you breathe out and that that breathing out that exhaling is letting go that's the no wind that that's so almost like um, from your example of being angry about being angry, you're letting go of your own anger about being angry. And you're just letting that 
emotion that you're feeling uh, manifest itself. You're observing that you're recognizing the causes and impacts. You're seeing how it ripples throughout your body and the different things it's making you want to do. And and then you're able to become more compassionate towards yourself because you see that, but it's, it's, you know, like just kind of like letting go and letting things be what they are instead of, Oh, I shouldn't have done that. You know, and like racking yourself up with guilt. You're like, so how was that? Yeah, that, that makes total sense. So, uh, Nirvana is often translated as, uh, extinguishing. Mm. Uh, and what, what's being extinguished is, uh, well, according to some traditions, it's like the, the fires of, of hatred, mm. uh, and delusion and, uh, and, and craving, so again, we go back to this, the desire mm-hmm. uh, and the aversion uh, and what gets extinguished is wanting things to be other than how they are. Mm-hmm. So I think the misconception with Nirvana as a, as a, as an ultimate destination in most Buddhist traditions, um, you'll hear a lot about the concept of heaven and hell as being present state moments, mental yeah. states, not, not places you go to, but uh, it's what you're experiencing now in the present moment. Um, if you correlate that with this concept of nirvana, nirvana is more of a, a state of peace, not an actual place, but uh, it's a mental state. And if it if if you're correlating this with the definition that uh, extinguishing, it's like recognizing that nirvana doesn't mean I won't experience uh, anger. It means I'll be content with the anger I'm experiencing. I'm at peace with whatever is. And if what is right now is anger and I'm at peace with that, then there's nirvana. And uh, again, when we define it, this is where it becomes problematic because if someone says, oh, nirvana is this peaceful state where you no longer have anger or you're always at peace. uh, Well, what does that mean to you? What does that mean to me? What does it mean to someone else who hears it? We start getting all these different um, concepts of it. But if at its root, peace is acceptance. Peace is being content with things just as they are. And sometimes things are that I'm hungry. Sometimes mm. things are that I'm angry. Sometimes the current state is just I'm sad. And when I'm okay with accepting that current state as it is, I'm at peace. And then it's like, oh, well, that's nirvana. That's the extinguishing of wanting things to be other than they are. You're just accepting things for that moment as they are while recognizing that change is inevitable, right? Change is the constant. So it's not, it's not to say I'm going to accept things as they are and never strive to change, you know, change my life or change these injustices in the world. It's not that because change is inevitable. But what it is, is it's giving me the ability to approach these changes with more skill. I can be more skillful about it because I'm not being driven by greed or hatred or, de- or or delusion i'm i've accepted that this is how it is i'm angry and what am i going to do with that anger i'm going to uh, take action and i think uh martin luther king's a good example of this you know he he fought against injustices that were taking place in his day um and there were i think it's safe to say that there was probably anger involved with that sure uh, there there were a lot of emotions involved with that but hatred didn't seem to be one of those. He was coming from a place of, of much more skillful action. Yeah. And that's what Buddhism is trying to do. It's trying to help us be in this place where we can have more skillful action and less unskillful reactivity, uh, where I'm just 
reacting to the emotions I'm experiencing and reacting to whatever life is throwing at me, that's not very skillful. Um, and that's kind of what this boils down to, to me at least, in my yeah. opinion. Uh, that's, that's the ultimate aim of all of this as a practice. Yeah. No, I, I, I like invoking Martin Luther King. I, I think his uh, letters from Birmingham jail had such an impact on me. Um, again, this is going back um, yeah, to, to, to when I was in college and, and read it for the first time. And yeah, I, I, it, it, it does seem like a very responsible, healthy way to um, deal with injustice and fight against injustice without kind of giving in to those things that would make it worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, how, how are you doing on time, by the way? I'm good. Okay. Um, with the, the, the fourth noble truth, which is the, the middle way eightfold path, th- this is one that for me is always very blurry uh, yeah. compared to the first three. Um, and um, could, could, can you sum it up? Uh, like, <laughs> what, what is the, the, the value in the, in the fourth one or what are the, the, the key things to remember about that fourth noble truth? Yeah, I think if you were to summarize it, that's probably um, the more skillful way of doing it. Mm. Rather than saying, here's number one, here's number two. It's What it's trying to get at is that there is a path that we can, uh, a way that we can approach life that's going to result in less self-inflicted suffering for ourselves and others. And that pertains to the practical things in life. What kind of a job do I have? What kind of communication do I have with the people that I communicate with? Um, what kind of effort goes into uh, me, into my spiritual practice of trying to be more mindful? It's essentially the different aspects of your life where you can make a difference. And some of them are obvious, like, um, well, if I were to go get a job as a, as an assassin, well, I'm going to create a lot more suffering than a, if I get a job as a doctor, right? So that's, that could be an aspect of the path is the type of work that you do. Um, I, some I could, of them, I could put an assassin to some pretty good use though, that would eliminate <laughs> suffering, I think right now, but maybe, yeah, you know, maybe I shouldn't think that way. <laughs> but, uh, so you get the, the gist of, of what's uh, trying to be communicated with the fourth truth is what are the areas in your life where you can actually start looking at them and, and and being pragmatic in your approach to, is this causing me more suffering uh, and is it causing others more suffering? And that's really the intent of the, of the fourth noble truth is what is that path? What is the lifestyle that I can live that uh, minimizes the self-inflicted suffering that I put on me and others? All right. I like that. Yeah. And, and that's always one I feel like I need to spend more time in that, uh, like really trying to internalize what that path is. I think that's probably the next step for me in uh, learning more about Buddhism. I think when, it, when the path or the fourth noble truth is approached as a, okay, what are the rules here? What can I do? What can't I do? What do Buddhists do and not do? Um, I don't think that's very beneficial. Right. Um, because it doesn't really work that way. It's, it's recognizing, you know, th- there's this other concept in Buddhism that this is uh, skillful means. And it's the recognition that what is skillful means for you in your life and in your circumstances may be different than what is skillful means for me in my life and in my circumstances. So if I approach this concept of the path 
as a list, like I would the commandments, right? Do this, yeah. don't do that. Well, there may be things that make more sense for you to do and for me not to do based on our circumstances. So um, I, I wanted to emphasize that because I think when we, when we look at any of the things that emerge as part of this path, any books that are going to talk about it, uh, rather than thinking of it as these fixed sets of rules, that apply in every situation to every single person. Uh-huh. Yeah. They're, they're more like guidelines to look at that I can apply to my life and decide, is this skillful for me to do this or not? Like parlay. The code is more what you call guidelines than actual rules. Yeah, exactly. more, like, more like guidelines. It's exactly what came to my mind. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and that kind of leads into this discussion about dogma because when... Um, you, you mentioned in your book that that Buddhism uh, doesn't have dogma or tries not to have dogma, but it it seems that it's just human nature that gravitates towards dogma that that would take the the four noble truths that would take the eightfold path and turn it into dogma and and maybe that's a reaction again you know the the falling with the parachute and give me something i can hold on to that certainty and uh a checklist that i can do to know that i'm doing it the right way um but do, do all of the different <laughs> that, that that this is a broad question do do the different sects of buddhism do a, a equally good job of eschewing dogma or does dogma creep in uh even to different buddhists that say we don't want dogma but then they end up dogmatic in certain ways <laughs> yeah i uh i think it's wishful thinking to think there's no dogma in the mm. schools of buddhism i think there's a lot of dogma and even the, the and how would you define dogma uh rigidity okay this is the right way to view this this is the right interpretation of that uh, this is the right way to be, what to do, what not to do. Uh, any form of, um, I guess, kind of a, an incontrovertible truth. That, and then, then I think especially the inverse of that. If this is the right way, then that's the wrong way. Yeah. Well, you're doing that's the wrong. You're doing it the wrong way. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, unfortunately, you even find it with the non-dogmatic approaches because they're like, oh, like secular Buddhism. You'll find secular Buddhists who will be dogmatic against the dogmatism of mm -hmm classical Buddhists and say, well, they're doing it all wrong because they're too dogmatic. And it's like, well, <laughs> now here you are doing the very same thing. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it creeps in everywhere. I think that's the natural human tendency to want definitions and lines and labels and, and in groups and out groups. And in all of that dogmatism absolutely creeps in. So what do you, what do you do when you encounter dogma um, and, and I want to take that into two pieces when you uh, encounter it in yourself and you recognize that in yourself. Um, and then what, what do you do when you recognize that in others? Um, so starting with myself, I recognize that my way of viewing things is my way. And I try to emphasize when I'm explaining to someone, whether it's talking about Buddhism or talking about some life lesson with my kids, I try to end it with this is how I view it. Or if I'm talking about Buddhism, I always say, in my opinion, uh, what's trying to be conveyed here is blah, blah, blah. Um, I, I try to emphasize this, the notion that this is just how I view it. You may view it very differently, and yours may be more accurate for you and your life 
to understand it that way than I understand it in my way. Um, I, I don't know that it's possible to ever completely eliminate dogmatism. It's like saying I'm trying to eliminate all my biases. Right. Well, <laughs> the nature of being human and having a brain is that you will have biases. Mm-hmm. So I think it's helpful just to recognize that creeps in. That's a very natural thing. So how, how do I work with that skillfully? Mm-hmm. Um, that's how I work with it with myself. Um, what was the other area you wanted? When you, when you, when you encounter it in others, oh. someone's responding to you very dogmatically. Yeah, that, that one's a lot more tricky because it's not helpful or skillful to say, oh, you're being dogmatic. <laughs> so how do, you help, how do you get someone else to see their, the, their dogmatic approach? Uh, I don't know. What I usually do is I say, oh, that, that must make sense for you. It doesn't make sense like that for me. Um, but I bet if I were you, I bet I would see it exactly like that. Mm. Uh, that's usually the extent I'll go. I don't try to... I don't try to break down someone's dogma or, or, you know, highlight the errors in their thinking. I don't think that's very beneficial in most circumstances. Maybe I would in, in certain instances like family dynamics where, you know, if my spouse and I are approaching a topic and it's affecting the way our kids are going to grow up, yeah, that might be more important to say, well, wait a second, we need to approach how you're viewing this and how I'm viewing this. And I'll spend more time there dissecting a a dogmatic thought or a dogmatic belief. Um, But in my everyday interactions with people, I, I don't even worry about it. They can be dogmatic. (laughs) Mm, Okay. You you give a a parable in your book that's called the, um, the poisoned arrow. Mm -hmm. Can, can you tell that story here and explain how that, uh, that story relates to what we've been talking about? Sure. Uh, there are two parables of poisoned arrows. Are you referring to the, the one that illustrates the second arrow or the one that's the, the poison arrow and looking for a cure? Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that one, that one I think highlights the pragmatic approach to uh, Buddhism. Uh, and it's conveyed in this uh, parable of, of a, a poisoned arrow. So the, the story is that there's uh, someone walking out in the field or in the forest and out of the blue, they get shot with, by someone with a poisoned arrow. And there they are looking at the arrow, maybe protruding from their chest or wherever they got hit. And they assemble their entourage, all their people to go out and find who did this, what kind of bow did they use? What kind of string was on the bow? Um, what kind of uh, wood was the arrow crafted from? And what kind of bird did the feather come from? You know, all these and, details. And what kind of an injustice it was that they even got shot by an arrow in the first place. Mm-hmm. They didn't deserve it. Yeah. They didn't deserve it. <laughs> so they all go out there looking. And when they come back, uh, they, the person's there dead. Yeah. And so, so the origin, the background of this story, this is a parable that the Buddha taught. And he was approached... Um, on several instances by his own disciples uh, with concern about addressing some of the bigger existential questions in life. Some of the questions of their time was, you know, is, is, uh, is life a a finite thing or is it infinite? Um, uh, Questions like that, you know, wanting to know the nature of reality. And he was very careful uh, to never get into the, 
answers of the existential questions. They seemed irrelevant to him. And this was the parable he gave. So at, some, at one point, one of, the, one of his disciples was so fed up. He's like, I need to know the answers to some of these questions. If you don't tell me, I'm just going to leave the order. I'm going to leave the monastic order. And that's where the Buddha says, well, let me tell you this story. And he gives the, sto- the parable of the, of the arrow. And at the end, he says, well, they all came back and, uh, and, and they didn't have answers to the questions and, and the guy was dead anyway. And, and so that, that's where he flips it. And he's like, that's kind of like us in life. It's like we've been hit with this poisoned arrow that guarantees that at some point we're all going to die. That's the inevitable truth uh, to the situation at hand. Um, so yeah, you could send everyone out and try to answer all these unanswerable questions, or you could be more skillful and tend to the actual situation at hand, which is I have limited time left now. What am I going to do with that time? Am I going to tend to the, the wound that I'm experiencing and try to make the, you know, the, the time I have left more enjoyable? Uh, those are things that ultimately are more skillful than the seeking the answers to all these unanswerable questions. Um, So I think knowing the context of where that parable emerges is important because that a lot of us are like the, uh, you know, the person shot with the arrow and then we're directing all the questions to the wrong places. Maybe it's not fair to say the wrong places, but less skillful places because how, how do you know all these things? You can't know all the details of that arrow um, you don't have enough time to go find all this out. Um, so it's more skillful to say, well, here's the situation at hand. What am I going to do about it? What am I going to do with this? Um, and, and that's something I really like about Buddhism. It's, it's putting the emphasis on the situation at hand. In life, difficulties arise. Well, what am I going to do with that? I'm going to have aversion towards the unpleasant ones. I'm going to feel... Uh, desire or craving towards the pleasant things. Well, what am I going to do with that? How do I navigate that skillfully? Um, and just taking a, a, a more pragmatic approach to the situation at hand. Um, that is, uh, that's what I really enjoy about Buddhism as a philosophy, as a way of life, or as a, as a religious practice, like some people uh, would practice it. Uh, it's very pragmatic in its nature. Cool. Yeah, I really liked that story when I came across it in, in the book because it, what, what what I took away from it was that in this this limited time, as you're dying with the poison, you're focusing on the wrong things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it, it it's not going to cure you of the poison. It's not going to improve your condition as you're you're. It's just, but 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 how how uh, common is that? that we do respond to any kind of injury that we perceive from other people by wanting to be vengeful or find retribution or, you know, all, all of these different things that we could, um, could, could go off as distractions from really what we should be focusing on. And, uh, yeah, that, I, I, I like that in that story. So let's, let's talk a little bit uh, about your podcast because you started this, what was it, December 2015, Secular Buddhism? And, yeah. uh, and, yeah, and, and why, do you, why do you make the emphasis on secular Buddhism? Why is that the qualifier, the descriptor? Yeah, it's, um, so Buddhism in itself is, is it's a non-theistic tradition. It's already very secular as it is. But most people don't know that. I didn't know that. Um, and I, my initial 
contact with Buddhism was a very, uh, I'll put my feet in the water and feel, you know, feel it out before I really dive into it because I was, I was coming from a place where I had zero interest in any new form of ism in my life. And Buddhism sounded just like any other ism. Um, so when I realized just how, um, how pragmatic it can be and non-religious it can be, um, when I would talk about it with other people, I noticed uh, at least the circles that I run in, which is a lot of people who are disaffected with religion, were leery. They didn't want another religion. But when I told them Buddhism is very secular in its nature, um, or I'd say secular Buddhism, the defenses were down. It's like, oh, I'm interested in that. If it's a non-religious explanation of Buddhism or Buddhism as a philosophy, then they're interested in hearing about it. Um, so, so secular is the Trojan horse that you put Buddhism inside to just spring religion on them eventually, right? <laughs> they think they're not getting religion, but you're really giving them religion. I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, uh, the way it worked for me was this understanding that uh, Buddhism is just Buddhism. There's really no such thing as secular Buddhism, but secular Buddhism is a uh, it's viewing Buddhism through the land, through a secular lens. Uh, how does this stuff make sense outside of the context of religion? And what I found is, well, it makes a lot of sense. Um, so yeah, it, it's just a, a view of Buddhism as a philosophy or as a way of life. Um, but I don't necessarily view secular Buddhism as a, a separate form of Buddhism, as opposed to regular Buddhism. Uh, Buddhism is just Buddhism. It's, it's uh, all these collections of teachings and perspectives and ideas and stories. And some people will explain those things to you in a very religious context, like, oh, let's go light candles and, and sing chants about it. Others will explain a lot of these same perspectives and stories to you in a very pragmatic approach like I do. And that's why I call it secular Buddhism. I remember it was probably a year, year and a half ago. I was in a car with with your brother Nick and and uh, Anessa, and um, you had you had already started uh, your podcast and had been for for a while. And um, he was telling me how successful you were, and I don't remember the the downloads. So I'm interested to know what your downloads are. But I remember thinking, yeah, this is a this is a topic that has a much broader appeal than ex-Mormonism that we focus on for infants on thrones. So I'm, I'm curious what the, what the response has been from, from listeners and, and what kind of a, an impact you feel like you've made with it. Uh, it, yeah, it's been growing quite a bit. I'm, I'm approaching two and a half million, uh, downloads and hundreds of thousands of regular listeners now. Um, and, and what I found, what seems to be pretty universal is it's an audience that at some point has become disaffected with their, their, uh, their, uh, inherited beliefs yeah. or their faith tradition. Mm-hmm. And they've dabbled with, uh, Buddhism a little bit. And then when they see the prefix secular to Buddhism, then it piques their interest because they feel like, oh, uh, what is this non-religious Buddhism he's talking about? And then they they dive into it and start learning about these concepts and realize, oh, okay, there's nothing to, you don't need to fear what's being taught in Buddhism because it's not trying to convert anyone to anything. Yeah. And, and you get the same sentiment in classical Buddhism. Even the Dalai Lama, you know, uh, says, do not try to use what you learn from Buddhism to be a Buddhist. Use it to be a better whatever you already are. Mm. It's like, uh, it's already fascinating that, Buddhists will tell you why, why on earth would you want to be a Buddhist? 
there's nothing special about it. Um, just be what you are, be a better, whatever you already are. Um, and I think secular Buddhism is just another approach to that, that, that says uh, you can study this just from a, a simply pragmatic perspective of how can this make me be a better, whatever I already am. Um, and I, again, I think that's just a, an important part to highlight here. It's not that this approach is better than any other approach of, of teaching Buddhism. What works for one person may not work for another. Someone will encounter these teachings in a very religious way. Some will encounter it through this path. It's a, a very non-religious way of studying that. Do, do you do you have a lot of interaction with your listeners? Do they email you, get in touch with you in other ways? Do, do you do interviews with listeners? Um, I, I do interact a lot with listeners, mostly by email. Um, people will thank me for taking the time to share this or that mm-hmm. concept or explain how it uh, uh, benefited them. I haven't ever interviewed listeners on the podcast, mm. um, but I have been told on multiple occasions, I found your podcast. I wasn't, I, I wasn't really interested in Buddhism, but the word secular stuck out to me. Mm. And most of the people who listen to it, like I said, are disaffected from some religion or another. Yeah. And, and they were wanting something, just a strictly atheist approach to life wasn't, uh, wasn't quite working. They wanted some kind of an explanation of something and, uh, you know, they often encounter Buddhism in the form of a quote somewhere. And they're like, oh, that's yeah. a neat way of thinking. So they want to study it a little bit more. They look it up and they find your podcast. And, uh-huh. Yeah. 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 That's cool. So, so on average, it, it, it looks like you, you release about two episodes per month. Like every, every two weeks or so you'll do an episode. Yeah. Um, what, 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 within the first week, what kind of numbers, what, what's your download number? Um, usually... 20, 20,000 in the wow. first, uh, 48, 70, 72 hours. That is awesome. Yeah. Well, at, at the height of infants on thrones, we, we probably had like 13,000 in a month. And, oh. and like right now where we are, we're probably like four or 5,000 within the first week. Um, so it, I mean, or maybe it was 13,000 within the first week anyway, but, uh, yeah, that's great, man. That, that is a great reach. Yeah. And uh, a good message. Now, I, I did go to iTunes um, to look at your reviews, and I found the most negative review. And uh, I want to read it to you, and I want you to respond to it. Have you read it? Do you go and you look at them? Uh, I have. It's, uh, it's been a while, so okay. I don't know if it's the same one. Um, well, so th- this this comment was left on June, June 12th, so a uh, little over a month ago from when we're recording this and it was a specific response to episode 74. Oh, okay. And, then I haven't heard this. Okay. <laughs> Good. So we'll be, we'll be doing this in real time. <laughs> so uh, he, he titled it dangerous teachings that remove you from the present moment. One star by questionable teacher, which I'm assuming is a man might not be. And he says in this episode, Noah lays out a system to test your dedication and love by playing out worst case scenario situations. And if you don't feel like you could love the person through it, you need to question yourself. This is terribly dangerous, as in many cases, we don't know how how we will react until the moment arrives. Also, love and dedication on this level builds over time. You can't expect yourself to be ready to bathe and take care of someone's bowel movements when first growing a relationship. It's ludicrous. 
do not use this system to evaluate your love as you will surely come up short. This teaching is so far from Buddhist teachings, creating this false what-ifs and horrible situations. This takes you out of the present, creating anxiety over situations that have not and in all likelihood will not take place. Suffering is often caused by comparison, and comparing your current state to a state that is fabricated in a dedication test are surely a path to unhappiness and unnecessary anxiety for yourself and the partner who is trying to accept the now and live in it, accepting what comes with the struggles and hardships of this life. Awful, awful episode. <laughs> so wow, okay. what, what say you to that, Noah? That's, that's the only like one star written negative review that you have out of the, the hundreds of five star reviews that you have on your podcast. Yeah. Uh, again, I'd go to the, what meaning was he making to whatever explanation I was giving? Because I, uh, I'm, I mean, I agree with what he's saying. The comparison of the present to a fabricated future is absolutely a cause of suffering. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not sure how he understood what I was trying to convey in that concept of, uh, you know, comparing the various potential aspects of, of how the relationship could be. Um, what I was trying to get across in that episode was that if we have a fixed idea of how a, a relationship should be, and we hold to that without recognizing that that's going to change, yeah. um, we're doing ourselves a disservice in the relationship. So the exercise or the method of thinking of other scenarios is it's not a comparison of the present to those scenarios. It's just, it's, it's another way of being introspective and recognizing, well, uh, I, I, the example that comes to mind, like with our kids, you know, I think if I just think, well, I love my son just the way that he is because he loves to play baseball with me out in the yard right now, but I don't have the, the forethought of, well, what if he grows up and hates baseball or what if my son grows up and he's gay or what if, you know, all these other alternative possibilities of how they could be. Um, what am I going to do when, when an change does come and my son is a different person than he was when he was the five-year-old, like that's, yeah. that's going to happen. Uh, so I, I didn't, I wasn't trying to say, oh, imagine all these alternative scenarios of the people that you love and compare the present moment to the, any of those future ones. That wasn't the goal. The goal was um, to put yourself in a position where you can recognize, would you still love everyone? Like, are you going to love your wife when she's old and wrinkly? Because if you haven't thought that uh, one day she will be old and wrinkly, then I think you're doing yourself a tremendous disservice. Yeah, uh, that's what I was trying to convey in that idea, and I may have I may have represented or said it in a way that he misunderstood what I was trying to get at. Well, there, there will always be people who are upset that you didn't compliment their rice dish. Yeah, yeah. So, may, so maybe something like that was going on in what you yeah. said. I, you know, I'm 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 looking at the time. I'm realizing we've been talking almost for two hours now, and we really haven't brought up the idea of attachment. I mean, I think we've kind of talked around it a, a little bit, but haven't specifically invoked attachment. And that, that's what I hear you saying in, in what you were trying to accomplish in that, that episode, is that th there's an important um, role in accepting the impermanence in life and not becoming attached to any one 
aspect of it. You know, like you live in the moment, you got to live in the moment. That's great. That's all we ever have. Perfect. But don't become so attached to what's happening in that moment that when you encounter something different in another moment that you're verklempt, (laughs) like what what are you going to do? And and so you were trying to say, I, I think, imagine these other scenarios where things might be different than they are today. And are you still going to be able to, to love and the, or is your love based on certain conditions that are only applicable in this moment of time? And once they change, that goes away. Yep. That's exactly the idea. Yeah. So, so where does attachment fit in, in, into all, I, I, I think I remember hearing it being associated with that third noble truth, but I don't want to be dogmatic about it. (laughs) Yeah. So attachment fits in with, um, it correlates closely with the the notion that we tend to see permanence where there is impermanence. You know, mm-hmm. life is always changing, but sometimes we fail to recognize that. So we attach like the example you gave to in a relationship. This is how they are right now. And they need to always be this way. Uh, when the nature of reality is that people change, times change, everything changes. So non-attachment is essentially the wisdom of adaptability again. Like we yeah, great way of saying it. Yeah. Um, and we do this in terms of space and time. In terms of uh, space, we see independence where there is no independence. We see a flower uh, without seeing the sun that it, it, you know, that's required for the flower to be. Um, so we see things as as separate from each other without seeing the interdependence of these things with all the other things. And that's another area where we experience attachment to the thing, um, the thing itself without the entire chain of events, the causes yeah. and conditions and parts. So non-attachment, I think in terms of time, is that recognition that things are changing. And in terms of space, it's the recognition that uh, if I love this thing, I've got to love all the things that make this thing, the thing too. And all the things that make the things, the things you, right. It just, it's just this giant complex web of interdependent parts. Yeah. Yeah. Despite the, uh, the the limits in using words in language that we talked about earlier, there's some really good words in there. attachment, interdependence, impermanence. Um, You know, we talked earlier on about this idea of, of Maya or illusion and how how dangerous is it? I don't know if danger is even the right word, but how conducive to unnecessary suffering is it to attach to anything that is a construct and is an illusion, especially when you know that things are going to change? Mm-hmm. Um, and and so much, I think, so much of the 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 culture that we live in does perpetuate this illusion of separation. You know, you don't see that the flower and the bee and mm-hmm. the, the the sun and the soil and the water and all of these things are all part of one large ecosystem. Yeah. And almost to the point where you could think of it as a large organism yeah. and that, that we are a part of that. I, I think humans have this tendency to really separate ourselves from the rest of life. Um, you know, even to the point I, I, I had this thought a couple of months ago, I was thinking about um, death and, and our, our rituals around death. And, um, you, you know, I, I, I imagine that once upon a time I was reading the book uh, Sapiens 
Mm -hmm. uh, which uh, Nick recommended to me, by the way. And, um, and thinking about at some point when we started telling these um, religious fictions uh, that, that we've inherited through the years, we, we started thinking of ourselves as being separate so that we could kind of justify our exploitation of nature possibly as a motivation there. And instead of giving back what we're taking, um, we, we kind of hoard. And, and I was thinking about this in, in the way that we put ourselves in coffins when we did, instead of allowing our body to buy, to, 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 go back to the earth and to, and to fertilize, you know, uh, and, and be part of that, that element of nature that's giving back what we've taken. We put ourselves in this box and, and like do these embalming things. Like, like we're trying, we're so attached to this form that we can't even stomach the thought of death taking that away from us. We're going to preserve that for as long as we can. And, and to me, that became a very visceral example of this, illusion this this illusory world and the futility of really trying to maintain this form that is an impermanent form uh and just how how ingrained that is in so many different areas in life and so many different areas in our culture um anyway thought that i had coffins like that Cool. Well, uh, let, let's wrap it up. Just, just talking about your book a little bit and where, where people can go to, to get it. Do you, do you have an audio version of it or is it just in print right now? Uh, an audio version is in the works. Um, I'm not sure what the time frame is on it. Are you I doing know. it? It's your voice. I don't know. I oh, offered the publisher. Oh, uh, I told them. Is, is that I out of your control? That. Yeah, it's out of my control. Oh, that stinks. Uh, I wanted to record it and launch it at the same time as the paperback. And they just said, we'll tell you if and when. Mm. So uh, I, I've put the feelers out on multiple occasions saying, I've got the equipment. I'll record it. I'll just send you the MP3s yeah. whenever you're ready. Yeah. And they I've just got a said, podcast. I sit and I talk all the yeah. time. I can do that with my book. Yep. They said, hold off. <laughs> oh, geez. Yeah. Okay. But, but where, where, where's the best place for people to get it? Um, I think Amazon is the easiest place to find it. And I have links to that on uh, everydaybuddhism.com. That'll take them to uh, the Amazon page. So that's your website, Um, everydaybuddhism.com? That's just the forwarding URL I used for the book because it was easy to remember. Oh, okay. Uh, My website's secularbuddhism.com. Okay. And that also has a link to the book. There's like a pop-up and it'll take you to the book. Cool. All right. Has it, has it uh, been selling? What, what, what did it come out in May? Uh, yep. I think May 15th. Yeah. Yeah. The, the book's been doing really well. The publisher's been really happy. Um, and they already want me to start the next one, which I'm starting actually in a couple of weeks. Cool. Uh, it'll be a, a five minute mindfulness journal. So mm. it's a little bit more of uh, actual exercises and practices uh, for the, the practicing part of mindfulness. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we'll have to talk when that one comes out again too. Yeah. And, and, and hopefully more in between then, because it's been a great conversation. I've really enjoyed it now. Yeah. I appreciate you inviting me to be on your podcast and talking about yeah. all this. Now then, Buddhism. In order to introduce Buddhism, it's necessary to remember 
the whole background of the world view of India, the cosmology of the Hindus. Well, now, how does the Hindu see the world? The Hindu view sees it as a drama. And it's simply this, there is what there is, and always was and always will be, which is called the self. That in Sanskrit is Atman, A-T-M-A-N. And the Atman is also called Brahman. The self, according to the Hindu view, plays hide and seek with itself for always and always and always. How far out, how lost can you get? So here each one of us, according to the Hindu idea, is the Godhead on purpose getting lost for the fun of it. And how terrible it can get at times. But won't it be nice when you wake up? Buddhism, unlike Judaism and unlike Christianity, is not very, very frantically concerned with being good. Good. It is concerned with being wise. Wise. It is concerned with being compassionate. Compassionate. It's a little different from being good. With having tremendous sympathy and understanding and respect for all the ignorant people who don't know that they're it, but who are playing the very far out game of being you and I. there is this additional idea that when the self pretends that it's each of us, it reincarnates through a whole series of bodies, life after life after life, according to what is called karma. Karma it literally means doing, the law of doing, whereby acts occur in a series and they are linked with each other in an unbreakable chain. So everybody's karma is the life course that he will work out through maybe innumerable lifetimes. I'm not going into that because a lot of Buddhists don't believe that. You will find that the Zen people, for example, are quite divided on this. They will say, no, we don't believe literally in reincarnation, that after your funeral, you know, you will suddenly become somebody different, living somewhere else. They will say reincarnation means this, that if you, sitting here now, are really convinced that you're the same person who walked in at the door half an hour ago, you're being reincarnated. If you're liberated, you'll understand that you're not. The past doesn't exist. The future doesn't exist. There is only the present. And that's the only real you that there is. The word Buddha is a title, not a proper name. It means the one who is awakened from the root in Sanskrit Buddha, B-U-D-H, to know. The man who woke up, who discovered who he really was. Now the crucial point wherein Buddhism differs from Hinduism is it doesn't say who you are. It has no idea, no concept. And I emphasize the word idea and concept. It has no idea and no concept of God because Buddhism is not interested in concepts. It's interested in direct experience and direct experience only. So from the Buddhist standpoint, all concepts are wrong. Just in the same way that nothing is really what you say it is. You only really there when you let go of everything and you don't depend on any fixed idea, any belief for 
your sanity or happiness. There's nothing you can hold on to, so man, let go. Because there's no one to hold on to anything anyway. So Buddhism is the discipline of doing that. You discover something much better than anybody has who has a belief. Because you've got the real thing. Every teacher of Buddhism is a debunker. But he does it not to be a smart aleck and to show how clever he is, but out of compassion. Just as when a surgeon chops off a bad growth or a dentist pulls out a, a rotten tooth, so the Buddhist guru or surgeon is getting rid of your crazy ideas for you, which you use to cling on to life and make it dead. It's absolutely fundamental to an understanding of Buddhism recognize that its whole method of teaching is dialectic. And since Buddhism is a dialogue, what you ordinarily understand as the teachings of Buddhism are not the teachings of Buddhism, they are simply the opening gambit or the opening process of this dialogue. The point being that Buddhism is not a teaching, its essence consists in a certain kind of experience in a transformation of consciousness which is called awakening or enlightenment which involves our seeing through or transcending the hoax of being a separate ego. As I said, it is in the essence of Buddhism to be a developing process because it is a dialogue you can see the initial steps of the dialogue in our earliest or presumed earliest records of Buddhism in the Four Noble Truths where you have it put out that the problem which Buddhism faces is suffering. This word dukkha which we translate suffering is the opposite of sukha. Sukha means what is sweet and delightful. Dukkha means the opposite, what is bitter. You could call it chronic frustration. There are three signs of being. The first is dukkha itself. The second is anitya. Nitya means permanent. Anitya means impermanent. Every manifestation of life is impermanent. And therefore, our quest to make things permanent, to straighten everything out, to get it fixed, is an impossible and insoluble problem. And therefore, we experience dukkha, or this sense of fundamental pain and frustration as a result of trying to make things permanent. The third sign of being is called anatman. The word atman means self. Anatman means non-self. That there is in you no real ego. It has no physical reality. The ego is your symbol of yourself. The second of the Four Noble Truths is desire, clinging. This is the same thing as holding on to yourself so tightly that you strangle yourself. The cause of dukkha is clinging. If you don't recognize that this whole world is an amazing illusion, a weaving of smoke, and you try to hold on to it, you see, then you start suffering, seriously suffering. The third noble truth is called nirvana. This word means blow out. In breathing, you know that breath is life. 
If you hold your breath, you lose it. Let it go. Because it'll come back to you. But if you don't let it go, you'll just suffocate. Don't cling, and then you're in the state of nirvana. Now then, the fourth noble truth, path. The way of Buddhism is often called the Noble Eightfold Path. In Buddhism, it is taught that everything in this universe depends on everything else. That we have a kind of a huge network. And this is called the doctrine of mutual interdependence. All of it hangs on you. And you hang on all of it. So the first phase has to do with one's understanding of the world. The second phase has to do with action, how you act. Buddhist idea of ethics is based on expediency. If you are engaged in the way of liberation and uh, you want to clarify your consciousness, doing that is inconsistent with certain kinds of action. So every Buddhist makes five vows, five precepts, and they take the three refuges. The refuges are the Buddha, the Dharma, the doctrine, and the Sangha, the fellowship of all those who are on the way. So they take these five precepts. To abstain from taking life, to abstain from taking what is not given, to abstain from exploiting the passion, to abstain from falsifying speech, to abstain from being intoxicated. The purely kind of practical approach to morals, that's the second thing of the Eightfold Path. Then the third thing has to do with what we would ordinarily call meditation, recollection. The word recollect is to gather together what has been scattered. The world is regarded as the dismemberment of the self, the Brahman, the Godhead. So remembrance is realizing again that each single member of the many is really the one. So that's recollection. To be recollected is to be completely here and now, is to be completely alert, available for the present, because that's the only place that you are ever going to be in. You will find, if you thoroughly investigate the process of experience, that the experiencing is the same as the experience. So you, as someone who is aware and all that you are aware of is one process. And you get to that state by the practice of meditation, which is sitting down quietly and being aware of all that goes on without comment, without thinking about. And when you stop categorizing, verbalizing, talking to yourself inside your head, naturally the separations between, for example, knower and known, self and other, simply vanish. If you go through this and you get completely blown out and released and are in the state of nirvana, when you get to this state of nirvana, there wells up from within you compassion. The sense that you aren't different from everybody else. Everybody else's suffering is your suffering. So that he who reaches nirvana doesn't, as it were, withdraw into a sort of isolated peace, but is always coming back into the world, into the difficulties, into the problems of life.
in compassion for everyone else. You can't be saved alone because you're not alone. Hey, that's a Claudia in Welv in Norge. Did you know that infants on thrones in Norwegian are called spädbarn på troner? Du kan kommentera den episoden på nettsidan infantsonthrones.com. Och visst du liker det du hör, ge formen fem stjärnor och skriv en kort anmälelse på iTunes. Det har jag gjort. For all you non-Norwegian speakers out there, you can comment on this episode on infantsonthrones.com. And if you really like what you hear, give the Korma a five-star rating in iTunes. And if you really, 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 really like what you hear and you want to make sure that we keep continuing to do it and incentivize us to do it, Patreon, man, Patreon. For as little as $1 per episode up to whatever monthly budget you want to cap that whole thing at. Patreon, where you will get exclusive content not available to non-Patreon subscribers. And you'll keep this podcast going. And do you know how to say come and join us on Patreon Norwegian? Neither do I, but it doesn't matter. Just do it in English. Thanks. I don't know, so I'll shoot him a bun. Thank you for listening to Infants on Thrones. Infants on Thrones.